When you and your church give, you send hope. In small towns, big cities, and college campuses, God uses your sacrificial giving and your partnership with the North American Mission Board to make this happen over and over again. And at NAM, we think it's important for you to know how God uses your gifts to produce results. Southern Baptist churches like yours fund North America missions through two primary sources. First, the cooperative program. Your gifts to the CP typically come from your church budget and then go directly to your state convention. Each state then sends a portion of that money to the SBC Executive Committee, and from there, more than half of CP goes to the International Mission Board. NAM, SBC Seminaries, and other entities receive a percentage as well. NAM receives 22.79% of cooperative program dollars. We use those funds to support evangelism events, to support ministry centers and missionaries, to endorse chaplains, and for operations. Altogether, those funds make up 35% of our budget. But the largest part of NAM's budget, 50%, comes from the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions. More than 100 years ago, this offering was named for a bold missions advocate who rallied SBC churches in support of missionaries. Today, Southern Baptists have thousands of missionaries serving in North America. They are spreading the gospel through Sin Network, our church planning arm, and Sin Relief, our evangelistic compassion ministry area. And when you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering through special offerings, your church budget, or directly to NAM, you're helping these missionaries by providing the fuel to assess, train, coach, and care for them. It helps pay for things like Bibles, curriculum, ministry equipment, or even rent for a worship facility. Some churches may refer to this offering as the North America Missions Offering or something else. Whatever you choose to call the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering, it is unique because every dollar goes directly to support missionaries where the need and the opportunity are the greatest. It goes all over North America, including our largest, most influential cities where the gospel presence has been on the decline. Your giving helps plant new, reproducing churches. And now, in many urban areas, we're starting to gain ground. It goes to places like international and refugee communities where tens of thousands of people, many from countries close to the gospel, move every year. Your giving is sending missionaries to love them and share the hope of Christ. In a hundred different ways, in a thousand different places, all of your gifts are enabling missionaries to start new churches, baptize new believers, and make disciples. That's how your giving works. As you pray and give, we at the North American Mission Board are so grateful to be your partner, helping you fulfill the Great Commission. Together with you and your church, every day we are sending hope. This coming Thursday night, our deacons will be setting our goal for our Annie Armstrong offering that we collect at, Chris, uh, at Easter, and we will be coming to you with that goal, and uh, we're just so grateful for the way that you give so generously. Uh, our Lottie Moon offering went about, uh, how many thousands? About 35000 I believe it was, over the goal. We ended up collecting over 105000 
And uh, the Annie Armstrong offering, of course, uh, targets North America, as you've just heard from Kevin Ezell. And so again, we'll be coming to you with that next week. And we ask you to be praying about your financial support and commitment to that offering as well. It's pretty exciting. Some of the strategies that uh, NAM has introduced across North America and uh, the way you have even been involved in some of these church plants in other areas, metropolitan areas such as Calgary in Canada and uh, then in New York City uh, with Logan Dagley and other places as well. So thank you for what you have done there. Folks, I also want to echo what Kevin and Jonathan said earlier. It is so good to be back in this place of worship. And on behalf of the staff, I would like to thank you for the way that you have handled this past year. Uh, all across America, as I read constantly about what's going on in churches, it's been a very difficult year for churches. And... Uh, been a very divisive year for churches and it's been a year I was reading in Baptist Press week before last where hundreds of pastors and ministers are deciding to walk away from the ministry that COVID and the additional challenges of COVID just haven't been worth it they say and they're they're leaving by the hundreds and so thank you for the way uh, we've spoken to you many many times about uh, just what a kind and just wonderful, loving congregation you are, the way you work together, the way you pray for your staff and help us. So thank you for the way that you have responded. And, you know, I think about how God has led us this past year. And so we're going to be in the 23rd Psalm this morning. And uh, just, just take a moment in your heart, before I even have you turn there and we stand and read the scripture, think about how God has led you and your family in your lives this past year, and how God has led us as a church and provided for us, taking care of our needs. Uh, we've seen a wonderful year of giving, that was a, a fear of many, that uh, those weeks not meeting for live services and virtual, you know, what would happen with churches across America financially, and people have really risen to the challenge, and you have as well, and so we're so grateful for that. But I want you to just think about how God has looked after you and your family and provided for you, and think of all the kindnesses of the Lord that he has shown you he's a good God he's a benevolent God and he watches over his people and the text we're going to read this morning is certainly a statement to that before I get to that I do want to mention a couple of pressing needs that we have about five or six weeks ago the family of Ronnie Knowles was expecting that she was going to pass away at the time. She had had some seizures, was in the ICU, and they had called the family in. And uh, she rebounded from that, and she has been back at church even on Wednesday nights and been a vital part of our Bible study and prayer meeting. Uh, yesterday, she went into the hospital for 
uh, they were looking at some blockages in her heart area and the areas where she had had a stent put in. They went back in to replace a stent. And when they did, the artery ruptured and she bled out internally and died on the, on the table, uh, just having something as simple as a heart stent put in. And so pray for Seth and Brooke Williams, Brooke and her sisters. They do not have any dates yet for us on the service of a funeral, but it's been quite an emotional up and down five or six weeks from them, as I say, expecting that she would probably pass away five or six weeks ago from neurological issues, seizures and so forth, and how she recovered and was so vibrant again. And now for this to happen yesterday so unexpectedly. So pray for this family. Also, I spent a good amount of time on Friday with Dr. Willis and Dot. As many of you know, Dot has been diagnosed with inoperable cancer uh, throughout her abdominal cavity and in her liver. And at this point, their approach with DOT is to simply take comfort care measures. Uh, they believe it is past the point that they could actually address the cancer and turn it back in any way. So um, they're focused more at this point on uh, simply comfort care. And so pray for this couple, a very special couple in the life of our uh, congregation. And uh, contact them, call, visit, send them notes. Just express your love to them as I know that you will. I pray for God to undergird them with strength uh, during this time. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, please. And we're going to, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to turn to the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23. And we're going to talk about God's guidance in the life of his children. And what a testimony to God's watch care over our lives this is, whether we're talking individually or corporately. It's a well-known psalm. I'm sure you could quote it from heart as I read it. David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you. What a testimony to your care and provision in our lives that this is. Indeed, you are a kind and benevolent God. And I'm so thankful for what David says in the, in the 103rd Psalm that you've not treated us as our sins deserve. 
You've taken our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west, and you remember them no more. But God, here in this psalm, we have the promise of your daily activity in the life of a believer. And it assures us that we are never on our own. We are never left simply to our own plans or devices. And God, I pray that these words would speak great comfort to somebody here today who perhaps is going through a valley of the shadow of death. And God, surely all of us can read this psalm and look back how you have provided for us in these previous months. And we're so grateful. We're so grateful for the hope that that gives us and the hope that you give us for the future. Again, you're a great, generous, kind, loving, and benevolent God. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Little boy loved pancakes. And his mother was convinced that was all the little fella ever wanted to eat. Every morning, what do you want for breakfast? Pancakes. And she would do that exercise morning after morning, week after week, fixing that little fella pancakes. And finally she decided one day she's going to break him for that so he'd eat something else. And she kept fixing pancakes and he kept eating pancakes. She kept fixing and he kept eating. Really surprised her how much he was able to eat. And finally she said, Johnny, do you still want more pancakes? And he said, no, Ma. In fact, I haven't really even wanted all the ones I've had. <laughs> you know, that's like so many people in the world today, isn't it? They want, they want, they want more, and sooner or later maybe they no longer even want what they have. There is such a lack of contentment in our world today. A lack of satisfaction in our world today. Some people have always got to have a new experience. A new job. A new car. A new relationship. A new house. A new spouse. A new trip. It's always got to be something more. To use Solomon's words in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is this constant striving after the wind, which Solomon ends up saying is vanity. And Solomon found that this constant striving for more doesn't work anyway. It doesn't satisfy the human heart. You know, there are a few people perhaps that could say the words with the Apostle Paul that he said when he wrote, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. How many people do you know that can live with that type of contentment? Well, this psalm is talking about precisely that kind of contentment. What a marvelous passage it is. Charles Spurgeon called it the pearl 
of the Psalms. It's quoted in the nursery and on the battlefield. Perhaps one of the first passages of Scripture the child uh, learns and the last passage that a man of God or a woman of God dies with on their lips. J.J. Stuart Perrone, the 19th century commentator and, and, and preacher said, There is no psalm in which the uh, absence of all doubt, misgiving, fear, and anxiety is so remarkable. One of the greatest expositors of all times in church history, Alexander McLaren, he said the world could spare many a large book better than this sunny little psalm. He went on to say, It's dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. Well, folks, today I want us all to see that only God can truly be the source of satisfaction that we're looking for. And I think when we understand the historical context of this psalm, it makes it even all the more powerful. You see, it's believed that King David wrote this psalm maybe a little later in his life after he had been king for quite a while and he's amassed many enemies and he's gone through many experiences and, and trials. In fact, some believe that he penned these words when his life was in jeopardy at the hands of his son Absalom. Absalom wanted the throne. And he was pursuing his dad to take his dad's life so he could then take over as king. One commentator says the universal appeal of this psalm lies in the comfort that it gives to those who have confronted the most difficult periods of their lives. It's a psalm of God's strength and grace for all ages. I want you to see first with me this morning our God is, is the glorious sovereign God who also condescends to his people. David said the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. I want you to look at those first words in this psalm. The Lord, because those two words really set the tone for everything and, 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 and really set the tone for everything David is going to write because he, he's going to write about how God is watching over his life through thick and thin. The secret of satisfaction in your life, my life, not just King David's, is to see that God is overall. He's in complete control of our lives. In fact, he's in complete control of all things. In Colossians 1:15, Paul says, By him were all things created, by him and for him, and by him all things hold together. You know, just like we saw with Psalm 46 last week, this psalm does not begin with man. And that's one of our big problems today. We want to begin with ourselves. And we're looking for satisfaction in things of the world or in other people. We start with man as our, our beginning point, And that's our fatal flaw. If you want satisfaction in your life, you don't start with man, you start with God. 
David says, the Lord. And in the Hebrew, it's that name for God we know so well, Yahweh. Your English translation may even have Jehovah. Or your translation may simply have Lord in all capital letters, signifying that Yahweh is the, the Hebrew. Now, if Lord in your Bible is not in all caps, like in another passage of Scripture, then it would be another name for God, Adonai. There's so many rich and wonderful names for God, but if it's in all capitalization, it's Yahweh. It's the name that God revealed first to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3, and then it's used 4,000 times in the Old Testament. It was a name for God that was very special among the Hebrews. In fact, they considered it too sacred to even say. And the ancient scribes, when they were copying manuscripts, when they would come to this name, the name for God, Yahweh, they would get up and they would, they would go bathe and they would change their clothes, put on a fresh robe, they would break that old pen and they would take up a fresh one and they would begin writing this name. And every time they would come across the name Yahweh, they would go through that ritual. That's how sacred they considered this name. Now, what does the name Yahweh tell us about God? Well, first of all, it tells us he's a covenant-keeping God. It symbolized that God is the sovereign Lord who is a covenant-keeping God. He makes covenants and he keeps covenants. And what's significance about that is he's chosen to condescend to us to enter into a relationship with us. Think about some of the covenants at the beginning of the Bible. With Noah. And then with Abraham in Genesis 12. And then after God had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, they got out in the wilderness. You come to Exodus 19 where uh, Moses is up on the mountain and the people are around the base of the mountain and they're fearful. And God makes that covenant with Israel that they're going to be his people and he's going to be their God. It's repeated again or spoken of again in Exodus 34 where God promised to take care of his people and he revealed himself to be full of love, full of compassion, full of patience and fidelity and thankfully full of forgiveness too. And folks, let's remember today in the church that as Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper the Last Supper, when, when the Lord's Supper, institution of the Lord's Supper came about among believers, what did Jesus say about the cup? He said the cup represented his blood. And what did he say about that? The blood of the new covenant. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And if he weren't, there would be no hope for me and no hope for you. But also this, this name says to us that he's the only God. It's singular. David didn't refer to many gods. They'd come out of Egypt. 
In Egypt, they had at least 360 false gods. In fact, they had a different god for every day of the week of the Egyptian calendar. And then the Canaanites also had many gods. But you know what? David and the Hebrew people had learned what? There's only one God. One true and living God. And have you ever thought about this? There can only be one sovereign Lord. I mean, think about it. If you were to have more than one, then each of them could not be said to be sovereign Lord. There can only be one sovereign There can be many little gods, that is the false gods, the idols of people, but those are just dead and useless idols. There can only be one true and living and sovereign God. And that's what's revealed in the Bible in Deuteronomy 6. The children of Israel were told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. One God. One God who has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three distinct personalities in the Godhead. What do we call this? The Trinity. Now you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you do see the concept everywhere. For example, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two members of the Trinity mentioned right there in one verse. Some verses you'll find all three mentioned. And then Jesus said when he left his disciples it would be to their advantage because he would pray to the Father and the Father would send another just like him who would be with us always. So we're not speaking of three gods. There's one God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. David says, this God is my shepherd. In other words, there's nobody like him. He stands above all others and above everything else. The significance of that is he's without equal. He has no rival. What I want you to see this morning is that while there may be many challenges you will face in your life, many challenges your family might face, many trials you'll go through, while many people will let you down, God will always be there to sustain you. God's character is that He changes not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, we all experience changes throughout the year. Look at how we've seen the world change. And it's going to continue to change in many ways. And you know what? At times we might be very uncomfortable with some of these changes but you know what this world is not our home but we serve a God who changes not he's also the all sufficient God when he revealed himself by this name to Moses remember he said I am who I am the significance is I will be what I will be in other words in this name God was revealing to Moses that he is the all sufficient God whatever challenges Moses would face before Pharaoh and now out in the wilderness and leading God's people to the promised land God would be able to handle it 
Moses and the Hebrew people had a resource that they could lean into and he would always be there to give them what they needed. That's what this name symbolizes. But not only do we see this aspect, but secondly I want you to see that our God is a patient and gentle shepherd to his children. David says, Yahweh, our glorious, sovereign Lord, who's all-sufficient, the great I Am, the creator of the ends of the earth, He is my shepherd. Think of that. The contrast is breathtaking if you don't get in a hurry and read over it too quickly. Again, this, this great, awesome, sovereign God who's above all and greater than all. He's my shepherd. Isaiah 40 says he sits above the circle of the earth, that all of the galaxies and the stars are like little particles of dust or grains of sand in his hand. He calls each of the stars and the constellations out by name. He numbers them all. And he puts everything in its place. That's how amazing he is. But amazingly also, he stoops down, he condescends and comes near to you and to me. As our shepherd. Shepherds were lowly in society. Remember when the children of Israel got down into Egypt, Joseph said to his brothers, Tell Pharaoh you want to live in Goshen. That's a good area for shepherds. And the Egyptians despise shepherds. The area of Goshen will be good for you. And so that's where they lived in Egypt. Then even when, you, when they get into their own promised land and later on in New Testament times, many times Israel too, even though they depended on shepherds, they didn't always think that well of them. They weren't able to testify in the courts of law. It was considered a lowly occupation and unclean because, I mean, if you're living out in the fields with dirty animals all the time, 24-7, you can't keep all the ritualistic laws so you could go into the temple. And so again, they were oftentimes viewed in a, in a lowly way. If you had many sons in your family, oftentimes it was the youngest of your sons. I think of King David himself, all of his brothers. The youngest son who would be given the task to look after the family's sheep. Lowly. And yet here we see that God, sovereign God in all of his majesty, chooses to be our shepherd. Folks, it speaks of him coming to us, identifying with us. A shepherd had to live among his sheep. What did God do? God sent his son to dwell among us. Why? For one reason, so he can be our sympathetic high priest. Obviously to deal with our sin, but also to, to identify with us and be our sympathetic high priest. And so when we go before him with our trials and troubles, he understands. It also speaks not only of his lowliness, but 
of his love. A shepherd took care of all the needs of his sheep. Sheep don't know how to care for themselves. And so a shepherd lives with this sheep 24-7 through summer and winter, all the seasons of the year, takes care of their needs. That's what God does. Folks, just think about it. When you read Genesis 1-1, where God created the heavens and the earth, and God spoke everything into being, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, this same God comes to you as your shepherd. That's what God does. And let's not forget what Jesus said about this in, in John 10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my Father who has given them to me is, is who has given them to me is greater than all no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand I and the Father are one he's the good shepherd Hebrews 13 refers to him as the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5 calls him the chief shepherd. As the good shepherd of John 10, he lays down his life for the sheep. As the great shepherd, he rose from the dead. That's what Hebrews 13 emphasizes. He rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father, and now he's our advocate at the right hand of the Father. As the... As the Chief shepherd of 1 Peter 5, Peter emphasizes that he's coming again one day to be our rightful judge. And so he's our redeeming shepherd, our sanctifying shepherd, and our soon coming shepherd. But again, he condescends to us. He's patient with us. He looks after us. Thirdly, I want you to see our God gives a generous supply of provision to his children. Beginning there in verse 2, David begins line by line enumerating everything God does for him. It's no wonder, David says, with the Lord as my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, a little girl misquoted this one time, but she also hit the nail on the head. She said, the Lord is my shepherd. He's all I want. Now, she might have misquoted it, but she had some good theology too, didn't she? If he's all you want, then he's all you need. You know, left to themselves, sheep need everything. But if we belong to the one who created everything, sustains everything, supplies everything, we won't be in need. If the Lord is your shepherd, you may not realize how wealthy you are. 
He may not give you everything you want, but he'll give you everything you need. And David goes on to describe that. He speaks here of green pastures. He's talking about God's provision. And then the still waters speak of peace. Sheep want to drink at still waters. Running water unnerves them. In ancient Israel, the shepherds would get, get their sheep up and, and they would get them out grazing by about 4 a.m. in the morning. They wouldn't wait till later because once the heat came up, it could be almost unbearable in some parts of the country. And so up until about 10 a.m., they would have their sheep out grazing. And then about 10 o'clock, they would start looking for a cool place, green pastures and still waters where their sheep could rest. And they would let them retire for the hottest part of the day. And then while they were retired for the hottest part of the day, they'd been in the green pastures, the still waters, they were doing what was called, we still talk about this today, chewing the cud. And while the sheep were chewing the cud, they were growing. That's the period of time they were putting on fat and maturing. And so the wise shepherd knows that that period of time in the life of his sheep is, is very needed, very healthy for them and for the child of God you know what that's speaking of King, I mean after all King David's not just talking about sheep here he's talking about himself and his relationship to the Lord he's affirming the fact that God is the Lord who gives him nourishment and those green pastures to the sheep are what the word of God is to us in Psalm 1 David talks about the word of God and how we're to dwell in it day and night, meditate in it. That's what we need to do. Don't just rush through your times in the Word of God. That's like green pastures and still waters nourishing you. You need to spend time in it. Meditate on it. What, what the green pastures and still waters did for the sheep, God's Word does for, for you and me. And while we're reflecting on it, chewing on it, so to speak, God's growing us. So many images of this in the Word of God. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never hunger. As far as still waters, Jesus said, I'm the living water. You drink of this water, the water at the well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of me, Jesus said, I'll be like an artesian well coming up in you. You know, the problem today is we don't feed and drink on what we should. We live in a dry and thirsty land. But instead of turning to the Lord and His Word and allowing Him through the power of His Spirit to nourish us, nourish us we just grab hold of anything. It's kind of like the children of Israel or Judah in Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah says, or the Lord says through Jeremiah, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the problem today. We're looking for things that can't satisfy. I think of the little boy that rolled out of bed one night and hit the floor. His parents came rushing in to ask him what happened. The little boy said, I think I stayed too close to where I got in. 
And you know, that's what a lot of Christians have done. They've gotten in, they've come to Christ, but they've not grown. They've stayed too close to where they got in. Again, when the sheep were at rest, chewing the cud, they were growing. Putting on fat, wool growing. They were being restored. Somebody might have looked at the shepherd and said, Your sheep aren't doing anything, just laying here. Oh no, they're doing a lot. A lot's going on. A lot's happening. And you know, sometimes we're like sheep. Sometimes today with the emphasis in the world being a certain kind of success, we feel it's a sin to be still, to be quiet, to get before the Lord. Some people even feel guilty at laying down at night and getting a full night's sleep. They think they're, you know, four or five hours, that's, that's enough. I ought to get up and be doing something. You suggest to a busy business lady or, 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 or man that they would do themselves good if they would get in the Bible have some time of rest and, and relaxation and focusing on the word and meditating on it like that sheep and the green pastures and still waters that they need to do that and they would laugh at you and think that would be a waste of time and yet that's the period of time God's feeding you and growing you God does all this for his children to restore us, to refresh us, to strengthen us so we can make it through a dry and thirsty and famished world. And then he talks about God leading him in the paths of righteousness. Literally what he's talking about there, God, think of a shepherd out in the wilderness with his sheep. A lot of dangerous paths. God leads me in the right paths. God gives me guidance. God sees tomorrow. I don't see tomorrow. You don't see tomorrow. But God does. And so you know what that means? God can direct your life now and tomorrow. If you take detours in your life, you go your own way, you might end up wasting years of your life going down the wrong path. God will lead you in the right paths. What's in our nature as sheep? Sheep were dumb and dirty and defenseless. They really were. I wish I had time to go into all that. And what's the nature of sheep? Isaiah says, all we like sheep have done what? We've gone astray. It's what sheep do. They needed a shepherd to guide them in the right path. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He, he puts me on the right path. Young people, I want you to think about this. God knows exactly where he desires to take you in your life. He will direct you into the right paths. There's the old joke about men, isn't there? Men, we hate to stop and ask for directions. You ever been going down the road on a trip? And, aren't you glad, men, we don't have to worry about that anymore? Take out your phone and the GPS and all on your phone. Man, you can type in. You don't have to stop and 
or get in an argument about stopping and asking for directions. And then some of these apps like Waze, I mean, I, I mean they'll tell you so much. There's a police officer 0.3 miles ahead. There's an accident 1.2 miles ahead. Traffic moving at 15 miles an hour in a 65 or 70 mile an hour zone. Recommends a detour. Well, folks, God will do that with your life. God will do that with your life. He'll lead you in the right paths. And so that means for me to ignore God's guidance would be absolutely foolish. If we truly believe God is all-knowing, we say we believe that, that He's all-knowing. All-knowing and all-powerful. What's the application of that? If He's all-knowing, if He's all-knowing, the application of that in my life is... At bare minimum, I, I, you know, I need to let him direct my life. He's all-knowing. I'm not. He's never going to take you down the wrong path. James and James 1 says he will never tempt you to sin. God doesn't do that. And notice David says here, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. He's putting His name on the line. Listen, God's name is holy. You know, we talk about the attributes of God and the favorite of many is God is love. But you know, there's only one attribute that is repeated three times. The Bible doesn't say God is love, 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 mercy, 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 kindness, kindness, kindness. He's all those things. But what's the Bible say? Holy, holy holy his name is holy his name is not to be used lightly or flippantly or taken in vain God cares about his name no one and I mean no one will ever be able to put a charge against God that God led them wrong David says he leads me in the right paths for his name's sake folks the ancient shepherds their name their reputation was wrapped up in how their sheep looked I'm serious the last thing a shepherd in Israel wanted to do was for his sheep to look ill nourished sick his very livelihood and reputation was wrapped up in his sheep. No one will ever be able to level a charge against God's name. Again, he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's putting his name on it. Then he says here, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In Israel, there is a literal valley between Bethlehem and the Dead Sea that was known as the valley of the shadow of death. But you know what? I'm not sure that's what we're supposed to be reading into verse 4. That, that singular valley. 
between Bethlehem and the Dead Sea. I think David is simply saying that God's leadership and guidance, His very presence will be with you throughout all of the darkest valleys, all of the darkest times in your life. Whatever may happen to the child of God, where, where the child of God says, I just feel so isolated, I feel so lonely, I feel like I'm in such a, a deep trial, I honestly don't know what I'm going to do next. David is saying through all of those times, the most fearful times of your life, God is going to be there and He's going to lead you. You don't have to fear. The rod and the staff were weapons that a shepherd would have in case his sheep were attacked. God has all the right weapons to look after his children. Folks, if an earthly shepherd had weapons, don't you think the sovereign God who has the universe at his disposal certainly knows how to look after his sheep? He knows what it takes and he has what it takes. Now let me just quickly wrap up by saying in verse 5, the image changes from that of a shepherd to a host. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In ancient times, when you would, when you would enter somebody's tent or somebody's home, you were under their protection. And they took this very, very seriously. In fact, ancient hosts believed putting a generous spread out before their guest. You, you think of Abraham, don't you? When those visitors came to see Abraham, he said, Whoa, stay here. Uh, come under my care. Let me fix you a good meal. Told Sarah, let's go get the choicest out of the flock. Prepared a feast. That's how Middle Eastern cultures were. Hospitality was very important. They would put out a marvelous spread to their guests, and they would protect their guests with their very lives. I mean, they took this very seriously. We don't know hospitality today like the people in the ancient Middle East knew hospitality. I mean, they really knew what it was all about. God is this gracious host for his children and our protector. And notice what David goes on to say in verse 6. This isn't something that's just temporary. It's here today and gone tomorrow. This is something that goes on and on and on. Throughout all times and even stretching into eternity. I think what Paul said in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered but no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord no wonder David could say the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want 
from beginning of your life to the end of your life and all in between. If you're God's child through faith in Christ, the good shepherd, he looks after you. Not saying you get everything you want the way you want it. That's not what he's saying. In closing, I think of the poem we've all heard. Footprints. One night a man had a dream. He was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the dark sky flashed scenes from his life. In each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One made by him, the other by the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that that happened at the worst times in his life. And this bothered him very much, so much so he asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during times of trouble, there's only one set of footprints. When I needed you the most, the Lord answered, my precious child, I love you and would never leave you according to my promise. During your times of trial, when you only see one set of footprints, that's when I was carrying you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Would you bow with me, please? This morning, do you, do you know the Lord as your shepherd? It's personal. Personal. It's not just affirming a set of facts about God. You could even recite the Apostles' Creed all day long and not know the Good Shepherd. Do you have a relationship with Him? If not, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to Get up and step out of the pew where you are and come down the aisle. Myself or Pastor Kevin will be here to pray with you. And we'll ask God to save your soul and do that work that only He can do in you. That He'll become your personal shepherd. I also want you to think about this. To say that the Lord is my shepherd is saying essentially I'm his sheep. And Jesus said my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. Boy we like to talk about God's end of the covenant don't we? God does this and God does that. But what about your part of the covenant? Obedience. Listening to God following Him, obeying Him. Are there areas of your life you know you've ventured off the right path and you need to confess that for what it is? It's sin. And you need to get back to following your shepherd. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody here today who's looking for satisfaction in the world, the things of the world. You're, you're like Solomon, looking in all the wrong places. 
The Jews had a saying, He who craves this world is like a thirsty man drinking from the sea. The more he drinks, the thirstier he gets. He drinks and drinks and drinks until he perishes. Seek your satisfaction in the Lord, only in Him. Is it your confession of faith like David's? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Lord, speak to your people while we're yielded and still before you. We pray in Christ's name. Would you stand, please?